Good evening and welcome to another episode of Nigeria Politics Weekly. My name is Nigeria's Best. I'm your one of your regular hosts and I'm joined by my other co-host, uh, Phoenix Agenda from Twitter as well. Uh, today we've got two special guests. The first is Demore. His Twitter handle is at Demore90210. Demore is a project manager with a public research organization in England. Our second guest is Steffi Coco. That's actually her Twitter handle, Steffi underscore Coco. Steffi is a lawyer and also a policy and governance consultant in Nigeria. And uh, Steffi grew up in Kaduna in the northern region of Nigeria. So first of all, I say welcome to our guests. And without further ado, I think we should get into the uh, topics for today. And the big news, the first big news from last week was a blasphemy sentence in Kano State. A young man uh, by the name of Yahaya Aminu Sharif was sentenced to death by hanging by the upper Sharia court in Kano because apparently he blasphemed against the Prophet Muhammad. Uh, that has caused a lot of outrage both on social media and in the general public in Nigeria and it triggered a debate on, on Twitter. There were a lot of people against the sentence but there were a lot of people arguing in favor. So firstly I'll bring in Phoenix at this point. Um, Phoenix, in this day and age, we're still sentencing people to death for blasphemy. What is going on? Uh, it, it remains strange to me. If you recall, uh, I think it was a month or two ago that we had this um, a similar case that someone was sentenced, um, and um, and the sentence was death for blasphemy, and we discussed this, and so. The first thing that strikes me is, number one, not only is it reprehensible that it's still happening, the fact that it's happening that frequently is a source for concern. I mean, I mean, two sentences within the space of two, three months is worrisome. But to the question you asked, I mean, I mean, I, I made my views clear then that um, blasphemy and, and all of that should not even be something that requires the state's to meet out a penalty of, of death. Um, and, and for me, when I think about how it has come about and how it continues um, to, to, to become the norm in Northern Nigeria, I look back to, um, and, and I try to trace it back and say, why all of a sudden is this, is this happening? I think back to when Sharia gained prominence in, in, in Nigeria after the advent of, after we returned to democracy in 1999, and then for political reasons, we saw all of these governors in the North. And before you knew it, 12 states in the North had, um, had instituted Sharia law. And you know, when you, when you do that, the tenets of Sharia law require um, these extreme penalties um, that have now become the norm. And, well, the good thing is that it's Nigeria, I mean, the law in Nigeria is still subject to um, 
uh, the the criminal code and obviously once people can appeal it and go to the supreme court they get overturned so hopefully that also happens again here that's why no sentence has actually been carried out even though uh, they continue to to pass these sentences at the local level in the Sharia courts. But for me, the the, 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 the the most critical part of it is the frequency at which it's happening and the prevalence since we since we started doing that. And I and I raised a, a question on that to say that when the state lowers the bar for um, for sanctity of life and property. It 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 enable it acts as an enabler for people um, to pick cues from that and begin to act in that abnormal manner. The reason why I say that is that in Northern Night, what happened in this particular incident? Not only, I mean, these guys they protested because of some song that the guy had shared on WhatsApp, um, and they went and burnt down his house. So they, they burned down his house. The guy got arrested, was charged to court, and has now been sentenced to death for blasphemy. But you see, even the even the violence they, they wreaked and, and the fact that they could burn his house down, nobody has even spoken about that. It's become almost like a footnote to the whole episode. Speaks to the fact that under those kind of legal frameworks, you are allowing people to, to express violence because they see that the state can do it. And it brings you to why you're having all this crisis in, in southern Kaduna, across the northern region, where you're seeing so much violence, so much um, clashes. I don't even like calling it clashes because that's not what's happening. But for me, it's, it, it speaks to that. But it, it, it's almost like I'm deviating from the topic, but it's a very worrisome um, case. And I'd like to hear from our guests and everyone else um, what they think. Well, thank you, Phoenix, for shedding light on these issues. I'm going to bring in Steffi at this point, because uh, Steffi, I know you grew up in Kaduna. The, the two issues I want to discuss, I want to ask, the two points I want to discuss with you, because firstly, the, a tweet was pulled up by Bashir Ahmad, who is one of the spokesmen to President Buhari. And in that tweet, Bashir Ahmad was declaring his support for blasphemy laws, but this related to somebody else who was to be stoned to, uh, to be to be executed. I think about three, four years ago, and Bashir was tweeting in support of that sentence. And with regards to this current uh, sentence, one of the sons of the Kaduna State Governor, uh, Governor Elrufai, his son tweeted also in support of the execution or in support of the sentence. So I'm trying to work out when you lived in Kaduna and in your, from your experience of, 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 of visiting the uh, state, is, is this, do you get this, the sense that executions for blasphemy are, are popular? Hello, can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Okay. Um, Executions will, the word execution would imply that a court of competent jurisdiction has tried this person and found the person guilty and then passed the sentence. But um, it's more like mob actions that are rife in um, Kaduna. For example, when we grew up, um, especially during the 2000 Sharia riots, um, the um, 
the Miss World riots in 2002, and then the post-election riots in 2011. We witnessed a lot of mass destruction of private properties, of public places of worship, mostly churches, um, the destruction of properties, shops of indigents, especially those that didn't live on the side where um, non-indigents live, which is the southern part of um, Kaduna town. And then you had such people running to their relatives or to their friends or their church members in that part of town to seek refuge and soccer. So, um, as per executions, not really, but then mob mentality is more rife. You see youths, they are burning tires on the roads, preventing people from moving about. The, um, the blatant destruction of lives, property, and public, this thing, and basically creating a nuisance. So such execution were not, you know, they are not executions per se, just mob actions, basically. Yes, people lost their lives. We've, we saw situations of people getting burnt in their houses by mobs, getting burnt in their shops with their wares by mobs and all that. So those were the kind of bloodsheds, but then execution is not what I will describe that as, yes. So. No, no, thank you for giving more background into the nature of the uh, violence, as you've termed it, mob action. But the specific question is, why do you think the leading political figures in that region seem to be unwilling to condemn the blasphemy sentences? You have people like Bashar Ahmad, you have people like the son of the governor. Why is there reluctance for them to come forward and say, look, such behavior or such sentences are not part of a, a modern democracy? I feel it's a statement to their base, their political base, because at the end of the day, these prominent figures are like the aristocrats. They are like the nobles that these mob, who may or may not be educated, look up to. So if they, if from their position of power or their, from their position of influence, they speak against what these people hold to be their religion, their, they hold it dear, and it's a way of life for them. If these people, like Bashir and Co, who should know better by virtue of their education, do not speak against such actions, then it is to appeal to that base that um, we're in solidarity with you, this is our belief, this is our religion nobody has a right to cast aspersions on what we believe and hold there and if you read about if you read about or you hear um a typical muslim describe their prophet the religion and the sharia they feel is like the best thing ever like you know the total implementation of this um, legal system will be like the institution of a sort of religious El Dorado, where there will be peace and the will of God has come to man and all that. So somebody with influence and with the education to know better, not speaking against this is probably so as not to offend that base or to um, cast aspersions or annoy their base. So I feel that is the reason. And then maybe to 
hold on to that political power because in the next four years when it's time to campaign, these are the people that will form the crowd that will rally and chant after them and all that. So they need to keep these people happy by not speaking to equity, good conscience and all that. So that is what I feel is the reason for them supporting it so blatantly like that on social media. So yeah. Well, thank you, Steffi, for shedding more light and giving background into the motivations of the leading political leaders in, in the region. I was going to bring in Demora at this point. Um, Demora, what I'm trying to uh, understand is the debate broadened on social media. It started off about the whole blasphemy, and then there was a general debate about Nigeria as a nation. And a lot of people were saying, the place is a geographical expression, but it's not a nation because it's almost as if you have two competing uh, political ideologies surviving in the country. So from your perspective, do you think it's possible for Nigeria to survive if one half of the country still has uh, blasphemy laws and the other half doesn't? Um. <clears throat> Uh, let me start by first um, thanking you, um, uh, Nigeria's Best and Phoenix, for inviting me and having me here. Happy to be here to contribute to the discourse. Um, now back to your question. Um, if I think it's possible for Nigeria to survive with this um, level of uh, uh, religious uh, intolerance, um, this uh, sort of very drastic uh, religious uh, judgments. Um, I think Nigeria is a very uh, resilient state and due to um, the deep uh, tribal and religious divides, uh, I, I would lean a bit more towards the part that Nigeria will survive. Uh, we have survived a, a lot of very um, harsh uh, uh, events in the past, uh, a lot of very uh, shocking um, judgments. Um, I think it will survive, but I think, I think there's a growing consciousness that such, uh, such religious uh, judgments has no place in, in 2020. So if you look at a lot of the responses you read on social media, it's largely the Christian base from the southern part of Nigeria that are voicing out against the, the, the judgments and a lot of the uh, a lot of northerners or I say the uh, uh, the hard hardened uh, religious hardened uh, northerners are happy with the judgment like you said um son came out uh, on social media to support it uh, he, he doesn't speak for himself alone he speaks for many others who may not want to come out to make their position public um, what, what I what I do see happening is that the clamor for there to be a a more tolerant approach in in the in these Sharia judgments would continue to get louder, and and it's my hope that you know in the near future they would be a, they would be able to tweak some of these judgments so they're a bit more in line with um with the. 2020, when, I mean, when in year 2020, these type of judgments 
I should have no place in in Nigeria as as it stands. So, so yeah. So so that's my thoughts on that. No, no. Thank you, uh, Demor, for shedding light. So, I'm 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 hoping that, or in, in my personal view, I'm hoping that we can get to the point where both sides begin to see that in in a modern democracy, you cannot have. Uh, uh, blasphemy laws that people have to be able to be tolerant of each other's beliefs even those who have no belief we have to be willing to respect that fact as well but i, th I think i think i think uh chica's hand is on up so i think she wants to say something yes i do um going to your question i just want to add to what um uchi said i don't see if nigeria is to come out of this quagmire of a section, you know, calling for blood for irrelevant things like blasphemy and all that, then there has to be certain steps taken. For example, I don't, the Sharia, in the hierarchy of courts, the customary, the Sharia customary court of appeal is the same, is at the same level as the federal high court, I think, as the high court, if I'm not mistaken. I hope I get corrected on that if I am. So I don't understand a situation where an area court is not even a Sharia customary court of appeal. That it's a lower court of the Sharia customary court of appeal that sentenced this guy to death. So I don't understand a situation where such a court will make such a pronouncement. So if there's anything I feel, and I also feel that the wordings of the constitution, they have to be corrected. For example, when this guy, um, Yerima, the Zamfara state governor in the 1999 class, instituted Sharia, his defense was that the constitution in um, section 277 subsection one gave him the right to create a Sharia customary court of appeal for Zamfara State to adjudicate on matters together with other secular courts, meaning together with other regular courts like the Zamfara State High Court, the um, Zamfara State Federal High Court. I don't know if they had a federal high court at that time. So that loophole is what brought in the Sharia, um, is what gave him the right to um, institute Sharia law in his state. But then you find that the um, adjudication of the Sharia law goes against the letter of the constitution. For example, you find that, okay, their punishments are um, punishments like stoning or amputation or flogging people with cane to the tune of 100 and above lashes and all that. It's it's against the provision of the constitution for fundamental human rights to human dignity. And then even in their cases, it also, in the adjudication of their cases, it is also goes against fair hearing because the principle of fair hearing in the constitution is based on all the utteram pattern and um, that was here the other side, and then no one should be a judge in his own case. But then you find out that, okay, for a case, of adultery or maybe extramarital affairs, if the lady is, the lady is usually the one prosecuted and then sentenced, but for the man, he can deny 
and say he didn't do that and then the court can let him go while the lady for her to plead maybe rape or coerced sexual relations she has to bring four male witnesses and we know in the northern societies the male female dynamics is something else because getting a woman to get four men to come and testify on her behalf in court is basically a herculean task so we need to start taking a firm stand about is sharia going to be under the constitution if it is not then why is the letter of the constitution in section one subsection three saying that any law that is that goes in contravention of the provisions of this constitution is null and void so you have that um section in the constitution making the constitution the major law in this country then we have a sharia legal system running their own different thing and then you also have in section four subsection um five of the constitution that any law made by the national assembly trumps that made by the state house of assembly or any pronouncement by any governor so how can we have so, section one subsection two and we have sorry, section sorry, four subsection sorry steffi i have to step in at this uh, i have to step in at this point because of time but i i get the point you're making which is the fact that sharia is supposed to be is supposed to be subject to the constitution. So what you're saying is, this is a fundamentally constitutional issue and it probably needs to go to the Supreme Court for a clear adjudication. I think Demore wants to say something very quickly, Demore, because we don't have time. So could you make it as a, a two minute point if possible? Um, yeah, real real quick, um, Nigeria's best, I'm, I'm aware you're conscious of time. Just to add to what um, Steph said, uh very quickly section 39 of the constitution of the federal republic state very clearly that every person shall be entitled to freedom of expression um so whatever the sharia court has said i mean section 1.3 of the constitution also says that you know the nigerian constitution shall take precedence over any other law so i don't see why this type of law should still uh, this type of judgment should still be given um, so that was just a little I wanted to add. Just, just the final point on that. Um, I, know, I know we're running out of time. I, I think the, it is the case that Sharia law is subject to our constitution. Like I said at the start, I mean, they, they pass these sentences for performance only as far as I'm concerned because they get overturned by the Supreme Court. Once you appeal to the Supreme Court, it doesn't pass uh, muster. And therefore, that's why nobody has actually been put to death despite all the Sharia rulings that we have. So again, it goes to the point that Steph has also made that, look, these people are doing it to, to feed their base and to make it sound like they're actually doing something about it. Um, the last person to be sentenced is still, I mean, the case it was overturned, but the person is still in detention. So they do it to make their people feel like, yes, I mean, Sharia law works, but at the end of the day, Nobody is put to death in Nigeria because of blasphemy. Well, let's go on. Well, no, thank you. I, I must thank uh, Steph uh, Demore and uh, Phoenix for shedding light on these issues. I agree that uh, it's obviously a constitutional uh, issue. And, and I think you're right that nobody has been executed or sentenced or no sentence has been carried out. It just seems to be more of a uh, political gimmick. But on to the, the next uh, big news from last week. The Nigerian Bureau of Statistics uh, published the unemployment 
fake data and quite frankly they were not uh, they, were, they, they looked they were terrible terrible uh, the uh, the headline is that prior to the coming of this government unemployment was about somewhere around five percent but as at the second quarter of 2020 we're now looking at unemployment of close to 30%, almost about, uh, I think it's about 28%. Uh, they said the interesting thing from the data was the number of people who are unemployed is over 20 million. And apparently that is more than the population of 35 of Africa's 54 countries. So, and, and the other thing is, they basically said unemployment has tripled since Buhari came into office. So firstly to uh, Phoenix, how, how has Buhari and the APC managed to achieve this record-breaking unemployment uh, figures? I think I think they've they've done it simply by being themselves incompetent and uh, without any capability to create value. Um, there are several ways to look at the numbers and and to anyone who um, who was aware of Buhari's antecedents and and to those of us that spoke against his candidacy all this time, it's not unexpected. Of course, the magnitude in short a sh short space of time can come as a shock to people, but it's really not, not unexpected. I mean, we've seen a guy who, when he led as a military head of state, took the country into recession, came back again, took the company into recession as a civilian, taking the ignominious honor of being the first leader to take us into a recession twice. And it seems like we're, we, we probably will go into a third one. When you look at the numbers, there are two ways I've looked at them. I've looked at them as reported by the MBS. What are the numbers that they've given us? And then comparing, of course, between when he joined and now. And bearing in mind that we're even lucky to be seeing any numbers. We've not, this thing should come out quarterly, but we haven't seen any um, data on, on, employment, on, on employment statistics since um, quarter three, 2018. So for almost two years, there was nothing to guide policymakers, to guide um, investors, to guide anyone on the situation in Nigeria. People were walking blind. So finally, we, we, we get this. And so when I look at the data and I say, okay, what's the first way to look at it? Looking at the raw numbers that they've given us. You see that it tells you that unemployed, number of unemployed people as of quarter one, 2015, you know, he joined quarter two, uh, or let's say quarter two was 6 million. Today, they're telling us the unemployed is 21.8 million. So clearly, that's, that's more than triple. It, you also look at underemployed, has gone from short of 14 million to 23 million. So that's a 9 million jump. But what's even worse is when you look at full-time em employment, I mean, people who are in full-time jobs, gainfully employed, I mean, has gone down from 54 million to th 35, almost 36 million. That's 20 million full-time jobs wiped out in the space of five years that this man has been in, in office. Now, when you, when you remember, at the time that he was campaigning for his first term, at, at a rally, I remember clearly, I saw those reports. At the rally in Kano, he promised that, ah, they're going to 
create three million jobs a year. We're saying they were saying that. So when you now juxtapose that with the fact that he has actually lost 20 million jobs over five years, which is an average of four million jobs a year, that's a seven million job swing. Now, I said there are two ways to look at the data. So that was just raw numbers that you're looking at from MBS. If I then say, where should we actually have been? Because remember, our population grows year on year. It's not as if we're static. So if I'm looking at 2015, based on the natural progression that we're following, where should we have been from a, from a labor force perspective? What we know is that we, we average an increase of about three to five minutes. Let's say on average, four million um, uh, people are added to the labor force every year. So that means in that same five-year span, you've added 20 million people. So you've added 20 million people by virtue of population growth, but in the same time, you've lost 20 million jobs. So essentially, you, you have created a 40 million job deficit. That's not even taking into account the number of people who were unemployed or underemployed in 2015 when you joined. So you, you see the degree of devastation and, 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 and it shows you very clearly. I mean, the numbers don't lie. It tells you very clearly what has happened in that five-year span due to mismanagement, due to a clear lack of capacity and capability and inadequacies of the Buhari-led government. Then you, deep, you go deeper into the numbers and then you, you look at, for instance, people between the ages 15 to 34. That's your most vulnerable um, uh, population, people who, can be, who are young, who can be misled, who, if they don't have the opportunities, will seek other paths that are naturally not productive. The data tells us that more than one in three of that population are unemployed. More than one in three. So then you, 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 you begin to understand why there's insecurity, why, why, why crime is rampant, why, why there are issues across the country. I was watching a video the other day where some arm robber that they caught was speaking and he was saying that he's asking them to just kill him. And instead of them sending him to jail, they should just kill him because when they sent him to jail the, the first time, that's when he got radicalized and joined people who then converted him. He was just a petty thief before he got radicalized and then became an arm robber and a menace to society. That's a direct consequence of decimating the economy, of of losing that many jobs, of creating a situation where there's no hope for people. Um, and, and you then see that happening. And I've not even talked about the fact that the labor force population has even gone down from 90 million in quarter three, 2018 to 80 million now. What that tells you, just to make it very simple, what that tells you is that 10 million people, again, I'm not even talking about the projection, if I add the 4 million uh, people that add that to join the workforce every year, the projection, um, sorry, the plain numbers in terms of 90 million people in the labor force, that means people who are able and willing to work, dropping to 80 million means that 10 million people gave up looking for work. 10 million people who want to work gave up looking for work between quarter three, 2018, two years, in the last two years. I mean, the, the numbers are clear. I mean, this government has failed the country, has failed the people. It's, it's just plain to see. No, no thank you, uh, Phoenix, for this, because especially on uh, 
you've expanded on the data, you've gone deep and highlighted the various aspects of the, the workforce that are uh, suffering. But I was going to bring in uh, Steffi at this point because I want to discuss more of the human angle. I know you're based in Nigeria. So putting the data aside, on your day-to-day uh, dealings in the country, can you yourself feel the unemployment in the atmosphere? Hello? Yes, we can hear you, Steffi. Yes, I can feel the more people are jobs. jobs. So the number of people who are looking to carry your load in the market or to help you with the stuff you buy from the market, there are definitely more. The more well-to-do ones, let's say the ones that saved during their working years, they are on the streets, either as care drivers or taxi drivers. You see children during the pandemic period, children were coming into the estate asking, they are asking for, oh, they can cut grass, they can help you wash clothes. Children under the ages of 10 doing menial jobs for their parents. You see their parents also coming around looking for menial jobs to do and all that. Like the hardship is so biting and it's really terrible. And honestly, this government has failed on its promise to provide job security for Nigerians. If I'm going to be very honest, it's terrible out here. And on a personal level for you in particular, do you feel that more family members are now asking you for financial help or you're now doing more things financially for people than you would have done before? Yes. I, yes, on a more personal level, it's more people are asking for financial, more... Oh, sorry. ...members are calling to find me some money for, the, for that. My for my grandma... So yes, every time the prices of, with the rising prices of food in the market, we're now adding more to her allowance and all that. So it's, it's really devastating on the pockets. Savings have reduced, investments too, and the Naira is also losing its value by the day. So it's actually very terrible. No, thank you, uh, Steffi, for shedding light on these issues. I was going to bring in Demora at this point. And Demora, you're obviously a project manager with one of the government institutions in England. So I want to get your thoughts. What would you do if, if you became president tomorrow? What would you do to reverse the course, i.e., what would you do to try to create more jobs in Nigeria? Uh, thanks, Nigeria, the best. Um... Also, very quickly, thanks, Phoenix. You captured the 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 analysis of the data very uh, succinctly, and uh, I'm not sure I could have put it better. Um, what I would do if I was president, um, first first and foremost, first and foremost, as as a president, I mean, you are only as capable as the people you surround yourself with. If you sacrifice, um competency at the altar of partisan politics i mean this is what you reap uh, so first and foremost i mean you'd hire the best hands number one two you'd ensure that those hands those people that are coming in 
key into your uh, political and economic philosophy of um, capitalism with a sprinkle of social, socialism in key sectors of healthcare, education. Then, you know, you tweak the entire architecture so that it is market-driven, economic-led. You have to free the market to drive the economy. Um, so in, in, in summary, you get capable hands, um, you tweak your political philosophy and your economic philosophy because this um, uh, statism, which uh, the current administration championed, has clearly failed. I mean, this is a five-year um, uh, yardstick or rather results you can see of five years of uh, hardened uh, statism and we can see the results. So the right people correct your political and economic philosophy, um, unleash the private sector, the markets, to be the major job creator. You cannot create competent jobs with N power handing out uh, 15, 20, 30,000. You have to let the markets lead on that. You as the government would need to create that enabling environment. You know, and there are, there, there are quick wins here and there. I mean, if you look at the power sector, if you dere deregulate the oil and gas sector properly, the downstream, you unleash massive potential similar to the way uh, the telecom sector was uh, deregulated uh, in the OBJ admin. We saw, we can now see the amount of jobs uh, MTN, the likes of MTN Glow have created, uh, not just direct jobs, the indirect jobs, and the entire value chain. So there, there, there are a number of low-hanging fruits which you can easily tweak and um, get going with. Um, also, you also need a lot of mass reorient, reorientation. Because there's a lot, the, the mindset in Nigeria is uh, lean on government and uh, get as much as you can. You need to tweak that mindset so they understand that um, it's a competitive market. The best ideas, innovation are those that will thrive. I mean, I want to see our billionaires being billionaires because they have created something novel and innovative and not just because of a government uh, patronage. I mean, if you look at the, the Bill Gates, the Mark Zuckerbergs, they have cre they create um, innovative products that make them stand out. So we need to replicate that. We need the private sector, the markets to drive economic growth. And you can never, you can never go wrong. I mean, you have lots of examples in, in the world, Singapore, the US in terms of economic development, even China, a communist nation, but they know how they, they, they have tweaked their, their, their economy to receive a lot of uh, inward capital and their, their economy is still uh, quite competitive. So, yeah, so in a nutshell, those were the things I'll, I'll tweak. Competent hands, tweak the economic and political philosophy, mass orientation, and also um, a sprinkle of socialism on the healthcare sector and education sector. So, thank you, Demo, for, for uh, setting uh, your views and I, I think they're quite correct. Uh, Buhari needs competent uh, ministers. He also needs to adopt uh, more market reforms and perhaps needs to do more with the healthcare. But I was going to bring in Steffi at this point because the debate today, I saw a lot of uh, conversations on Twitter about Buhari himself and 
why there doesn't seem to be outrage from the Nigerian people about the fact that uh, joblessness is on the increase. So I was going to ask uh, Steffi, in your interactions with day-to-day -day Nigerians, do you get the impression that they hold Buhari responsible for the for their lack of jobs? Hello, can you hear me? Yes, we, we can hear you, Steph. Hello? Hello? We, we can hear you, Steffi. Uh, yes, okay. We... Well, um, compared to the prior to 2050, Jonathan must go, they have failed us, then chop our money and all that. There's, with the, the atmosphere today is a very lethargic one because it seems everybody is tired. This sudden lethargy that, ah, talk, what thing we go do now? May God help. There is no, if you ask them who to be, eh, during election, then go do another thing. And you get statements like that, and you wonder where the energy, the pre-2015 energy, where it all went and all that. So they don't blame anybody per se. They, I think everybody, most Nigerians have resigned themselves to fate and are just waiting on God to come and save them. Because if you ask them who to blame, they're either beating about the bush or talking in circles without pinpointing who they hold responsible. So a lot of Nigerians have resigned themselves to fate and are just waiting on God at this point to come and save them or take control. No, thank you, uh, Steffi, for making that point because I think from social media, I, I think I get that impression as well. It's very hard to find people directly blaming Buhari and his government. They just seem to be calling on God or blaming some mythical Nigeria's leaders without ever uh, holding Buhari to account. Um, I suppose on to our third topic, uh, the Companies and Allied Matters Act, the Karma 2020, has been recently signed into law by uh, General, uh, sorry, President Buhari, or former General uh, Buhari. And it has triggered a lot of debate in both the religious sector and the business sector. Uh, people in his government claim that with this new act, the ease of business uh, will, uh, I mean, it, it, it will aid the ease of doing business in Nigeria. So firstly to uh, Phoenix, uh, do you agree that the new karma will do, do all the things people claim it will? I think without without a doubt, it's um, it's probably one of the uh, maybe perhaps the uh, most positive thing that that he've ever done. Um, again, we have to note that he, I mean, a president signing a bill into 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 law, there's a lot of work that has gone on behind it, and uh, especially by lawmakers even bringing it um, to that to that state in the first instance. Uh, a lot of credit must go to um, were they the seventh or the eighth assembly? I can't remember now. The one led by uh, Bukola Saraki and his team, who had actually put this in place, and it should have been signed 
um, then, but of course, why refused to, and then got his lackeys who are now in place to, to make some changes before it was signed. So I think it's those changes that they made that are now causing controversy. But to the real meat of it, absolutely, absolutely there, is, um, the, there is positive in the sense that one, the old camera was 1990, uh, 30 years without reviewing a very important piece of legislation. A lot of the things in, in it, in the old one, had become obsolete. I mean, for instance, it defined a small company as a company making a turnover of two million. Clearly, that's not the case in, in today's Nigeria. Um, so all of that, uh, all of those changes, I mean, things like beneficial ownership, uh, making sure that um, people who have significant stake in companies can, are now uh, known, that's important. That's moving Nigeria in line with the trends in international law and making sure that Nigeria, it shows that Nigeria is serious about money laundry and all those kind of things. Um, also, um, reducing the, the, the stringent measures around um, SMEs, you know, you can have only one director now, um, and so on and so forth. So there are a lot of things, absolutely, that will help uh, put um, small businesses, which is where you expect growth to, to come from, in a better place to operate. Now, whether the operating conditions are improved is a different matter. But from a, a legal perspective, from a setup perspective, also the lower fees and all of that. Now, when you add that to the work they did around the Finance Act, there are a lot of positive for businesses if they really understand. And I'm also using this opportunity to speak to those uh, because there are a lot of entrepreneurial Nigerians um, who have small companies to take advantage of the fact that, I mean, there are a lot of benefits now that if you, re if you can register a company easily, you can get tax breaks on the other side by virtue of the Finance Act because it's lowered, um, it's practically taking away taxation for companies earning below, if I remember correctly, now 100 million or something like that. So again, there are positives for, for business, for ease of doing business and for, for spurring on um, um, smaller entities and, and making things more, make more sense. The challenge is with all the other things that they've smuggled in, particularly around non-governmental organizations and, and religious organizations where um, the CAC has almost turned itself into a judicial body and, I mean, it turns out to be judge, jury and execution. I think that's where the challenge is coming from. And as I said on Twitter, I, I hope this is going to be a test for um, the new NBA leadership under Olivia Pata to see how they respond um, to this act. No, no thank you, uh, uh, Phoenix, for expanding on the issues. I was going to ask uh, Steffi quickly because, as, as I said in my initial introduction, the, there's two sides to it. There's the corporate side and there's, there's the charity side. Um, I saw a report in the news that uh, Bishop Oyedipo of Winners Chapel has been complaining about the new karma because he claims that it gives the CAC the power to remove uh, trustees of any church who have committed any kind of infractions. And I suppose the question is, why are churches worried about the fact that 
the CAC can remove their trustees if they've engaged in any kind of financial malfeasance. Is Steffi, Steffi there or is the connection gone again? Um, well, I, hello, can you, can you hear me? Yes, yeah, we can hear you now. Hello? Oh, okay. Well, um, the auditing of um, uh, churches and um, charity organizations in Nigeria has always been a sore point for the administration of um, these enterprises. So I would understand why the, um, the, the good bishop is kicking against um, the new karma. Then again, you'd have to um, in light, how do I put this? Then again, you'd have to, you know, exercise caution and be wary of the fact that this new karma gives um, CSC oversight functions. They can set up a panel to try cases before those cases are deemed fit to be taken to court or something like that. So I would understand why he is kicking against it. But then again, if your house is in order and you have no skeletons in your cupboard, I see no reason why you should kick against, you know, the due process being followed. But then again, if there is a case of witch hunt, as might be insinuated by him, then that's an, a different matter entirely. But then, if your house is in order, I see, I see no reason why you should kick against it. And then on the matter of, you know, CACB now exercising adjudicatory um, functions on companies that are registered in, um, accuser, judge, so that's like the low, only low point for me regarding this karma. But then we'll see how with time the events unfold and how they implement it. So, yeah. Well, thank you, Steffi, for shedding light. And I think maybe, I think I, I, I see your point, which is, yes, uh, churches and NGOs should be subject to scrutiny and they should try to keep their books in order but also you also highlighted the fact that there's room for abuse i was going to bring in demora at this point um demora with this with this new karma do you think that is enough for you to start doing business in nigeria or do you think investors need more than just a new karma to persuade them to invest money in nigeria <clears throat> Thank you, Nigeria's best for the question. Um, I'll, I'll put this quite uh, um, bluntly. Um, the, karma, the karma is a good step in the right direction, but there are many more things that need to be in place to attract the much needed um, foreign investments. I mean, first and foremost, um, there needs to be, you need to have that perception that rule of law is is being obeyed i mean you can have the karma act but if the perception is that the federal government do not obey court orders and act with impunity then i mean the karma is is does little or nothing to in, increase their confidence so um rule of law one two um the insecurity needs to be 
it just has to be tackled. I mean, where you constantly have um, Boko Haram, Fulani headsmen, bandits, uh, arm robbery on the rise. I mean, you cannot attract investors with this level of insecurity. So that's the second second sub, sub point. Um, three, um, you need to allow the FX markets have some level of stability and uh, allow uh, foreign investors uh, repatriate their capital. That builds confidence. You cannot continue playing hanky-panky with the FX markets, trapping dollars in, restricting foreign investors from repatriating their capital. I mean, they should be able to take it out. So when they're bringing more in, they feel confident. And we can see the likes of ShopRite and other uh, Mr. Price and other um, multinational companies uh, pulling out of Nigeria. So while the camera is a good step in the right direction, there's still a lot more that needs to be done to before we are taken seriously as a as a investment uh, destination. No, no, thank you for for this, uh, Demore. But I, I think you're probably right. Um, it's not enough to just have a good. Uh, companies act. You also need to make sure that your other policies, for example, the repatriation of capital, uh, security, respect for property rights, those things also need to be there. I suppose the, the, the final uh, cheeky question to Phoenix on this uh, religious matter, because I, I, I don't know if you are, I, I don't know if you're a churchgoer or, or not, but uh, if, if you were pastor of uh, Phoenix Miracle Center, would you be worried that uh, the CAC now has the power to remove you if you're maybe giving false prophecies. Oh, I, I think in I think in well maybe <laughs> I think when you put false prophecies in the picture, nobody ever thinks that they're giving false prophecies. But I think in 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 Buhari's Nigeria, I mean, just going back to the point that Demore was making, where there's no where there's abuse of 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 due process where there's no respect for rule of law you will be worried because anybody can make up any claim and say anything as long as the law already says they have the power to remove now the question is them cooking up some excuse to to use that power and we know that that is that is possible where there's a will they'll find a way and they'll find something um, to say and that's that and that's absolutely wrong because you cannot you cannot have um adjudicator um, powers over simply because you are a, a regulator of an agency. What should happen, what should normally have happened in the karma is that you will say that if you are convicted, then you cannot hold certain positions. So by nature, it will work itself out. So people who commit um, financial malfeasance or do something wrong or, and all of that, would go through the court process, they will be found guilty, and by nature, they would automatically be ineligible to, to hold trusteeship positions and, and all of that. But you don't then say, no, CAC will be the one to remove themselves. And that's the problem we have with the government today. It's that statist approach, it's that belief in big government, and, it's that, and, and those are the things that make it difficult to operate in Nigeria, because they, they just believe that they, whatever they say must, must happen. No, thank you for this uh, 
Phoenix, uh, thank you for shedding light. Obviously, I, I, I know you're not a false prophet, or I hope you're not a false prophet anyway, but I think I agree. The, the fear of uh, arbitrariness is, is one that should concern all of us. My prophecies have been coming to pass. I said Buari will be a disaster. He's been a disaster. <laughs> so, you're, you're now Phoenix Umbaka. <laughs> yes. So, anyway, our time is up. So, I must thank all our loyal listeners for always tuning in and for always giving us uh, regular candid feedback. I must also thank our two guests, uh, Demore, who is in England. And I thank you, Steffi, all the way from Nigeria. I know the connection was a bit... Uh, funny because of, uh, obviously, internet in Nigeria is, is not always straightforward. But uh, well, thank both of you for your excellent contributions. And to, the, to everybody, including the, the listeners and our guests, I say have a fantastic week ahead. Thank you for having me, Phoenix, and uh, Nigeria's best. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me, Phoenix, and Nigeria's best. It's a pleasure to be here. Hope to be back soon. Thanks, Nigeria, yeah. best, and, and thanks to Steph and, um, and the more fantastic contributions. Uh, we really appreciate it, and we look forward to fun. you guys again. Thank you so much. Thanks, listeners. Thank you. Bye, everyone.